You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Maps and Onyx Hunt. It's very simple. All you have to do is go to your app store, download Onyx, put it to your phone, and start using it. It's very, very easy. And the functionality of this app allows you to do so many great things while you're out in the woods or out in the prairie hunting or fishing. It allows you to mark waypoints. It allows you to know where you are at all times. It allows you to use the app even though you don't have cell service. You can save a map to your phone and continue to use it through your phone's GPS system. This app is uh, basically what I'm trying to say is this app, if you're a serious hunter, you need to have it and you need to use it and it will make you a more efficient hunter. If you want more information about Onyx, visit onyxmaps.com or go visit your local app store and download today. You can use the discount code NATION20, N-A-T-I-O-N-2-0, and save 20% if you are a new user. Welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. My name is Dan Johnson. I am your host. And today we have another exciting off-the-wall type of episode. This isn't your typical hunting, fishing, uh, tips, tricks, tactics. This is kind of following in suit what we've been doing lately and reaching out to the people who make this land great. And what I mean by that is biologists, uh, people who work for the Department of Natural Resources. And today's guest is a very unique one. His name is Dylan Laker, and Dylan works for the Army Corps of Engineers. And in this episode, he talks about uh, what he does on a, a daily, weekly, monthly basis. He talks about the navigation of the Mississippi River and how important those channels are. He talks about things like wing dams, habitat improvement projects, um, something as interesting as beds of river salary that canvasback ducks call uh, a food source on the Mississippi River near Clinton, Iowa. Uh, he's working on a project like that. A really interesting episode. I fish the Mississippi River every single year, every single summer, and it's awesome to get some insight into how the lock and dam system works and how it works in conjunction with the habitat and the ecosystem that's kind of all intertwined there. So it's a pretty interesting episode. But before we get into today's episode, as always, we have to thank our partner, Bondurant Custom Furniture. Uh, as the name would suggest, they're located in Bondurant, Iowa. If you want to find out more information about Bondurant Custom Furniture, please visit their website, BondurantCustomFurniture.com. These guys do some amazing thing, uh, some amazing things with refurbished whiskey barrels. They they turn the refurbished whiskey barrels into furniture like chairs and tables and clocks and light fixtures. They do everything. Uh, alongside with all the other custom furniture that these guys produce. So BondurantCustomFurniture.com. Go to their website, check out their gallery. Now we can get into today's episode with Army Corps of... He's got a big title, so I'm going to try to say it one more time. Army Corps of Engineers Biologist Dylan Laker. In three, two... One. All right. On the phone with me right now from the 
Army Corps of Engineers, Dylan Laker. Dylan, what's up, man? Hey, nice to be here. I'm excited. Yeah. I, uh, I tell you what, we were talking a little bit um, before we started recording. Uh, I, I enjoy the Mississippi River from not only the fishing side of things, but from the boating side of things. And I'm, uh, I, I've always been interested in how the lock and dam system works, how the um, Corps of Engineers manages that body of water along with their relationship with other Department of Natural Resources like Iowa and Illinois and how you guys communicate with each other. And um, so I think we'll talk a lot about that today on this episode. But the first thing that I want to ask you is, uh, I guess the first thing is, do you happen to know any history about the, the Army Corps of Engineers when it started or, or when it was maybe introduced into the Mississippi River or anything like that? Yeah. So the Corps of Engineers was actually created by Congress way back um, as early as 1779. Okay. Um, so they can trace their history back pretty far. Um, but when it comes to navigation and, and managing rivers, specifically the Mississippi, um, that didn't really start until the late 1800s, kind of the 1860s. Right. Um, it was in the 1880s that they actually uh, created the first nav channel. It was a four-and-a-half-foot like we're talking depth there, four and a half foot deep navigation channel um, in the Mississippi so that they could transport uh, goods up and down. Um, So yeah, that would have been, I would probably start it back right around the 1880s is when they started doing uh, navigation in Mississippi. That is a long time ago. And it it just, uh, a four foot canal or uh, I guess, uh, ditch in the Mississippi river would not suffice for the barges that I see go through there today, man. Some of those things are absolutely gigantic. Yeah. Yeah. So, so today we have, um, a nine foot navigation channel. So nine foot minimum, it's a little, usually a little bit deeper than that, but that's, um, basically doubled the depth of the, of the nav channel there. Yeah. What is a, out of curiosity, what is like a full barge as far as water displacement? How, how deep are those? I take it it's less than nine feet. Well, you know, it's going to depend on what they're carrying, right? right. Um, you, can, you can always notice those, those empty barges, right? They're floating up a lot higher than ones that are loaded down with like a full load of corn or grain um, right. or coal in that case. But, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, um, their draft is going to be up to nine feet. So they Man. need that. Um, that depth in order to go um, up and down the river. Um, each barge actually carries the uh, the equivalent of sixty semi trucks. Okay, kind of crazy to imagine going up and down the river at once. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's very very crazy. Um, so before we get into like the meat and potatoes of this uh, episode, why don't you tell us what your role is within the uh, Corps of Engineers and maybe what you do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? Yeah. So, so I'm a biologist with the Corps of Engineers um, here in the Rock Island District. So being in the Rock Island District, we're kind of part of a um, kind of a triplet of districts. Um, that work on what we call the Upper Mississippi River. So that's including the Mississippi from Cairo, Illinois, 
kind of the confluence of the Mississippi and Ohio rivers, um, and then moving north all the way up to St. Paul, Minnesota. And so that's those three districts would be St. Louis, and then Rock Island, and then St. Paul. Okay. Um, and so, I, like I said, I sit, sit here in, in Rock Island, Illinois, in the Quad Cities. Um, I'm on the environmental planning side of things. And so that, you know, can run anywhere from planning habitat and ecosystem restoration projects to um, implementing NEPA, the National um, National Environmental Policy Act. So that's making sure that, you know, whatever project we do as the federal government, whether it is an ecosystem restoration project or it's, you know, a levy repair project that we're taking into account, the impacts that our actions as the federal government would have on the ecosystem. Um, so I, it's, it's nice because I get to do a variety of things. Um, gotcha. But okay. it's centered around pl- planning these projects. How do you work or communicate with st- on the state level, like with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources or the Illinois Department of Natural Resources? Yeah, so my job wouldn't be possible without the partnerships we have with both federal agencies and um, and the states. Um, so myself and the other the other folks that I work with work really closely with fish and wildlife personnel. Um, USGS, the U.S. Geological Survey, does a lot of great data gathering on the Mississippi River. Um, and then, like you said, with the states, we're talking Iowa DNR, Illinois DNR, um, Missouri, Minnesota, and Wisconsin as well. And, you know, the state, the biologists, the fisheries biologists, the ecologists that work with the states have a really um, in-depth knowledge of the river and their stretch of the river and you know, being a, a district that covers 314 miles of the Mississippi, you get spread kind of thin. And so having that, that you know, technical expertise from, from those state and, and other federal agency folks is, is crucial to planning these projects. Gotcha. So that, that deals with the planning of these projects and the implementation of them as well? So working with these, um, with these state agencies and these federal agencies, like I said, is, is extremely crucial to, to successfully um, implementing and, and planning these habitat projects. Like if we're doing a habitat rehabilitation project in the upper Mississippi uh, National Wildlife and Fish Refuge that's run by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, they know that stretch of river, that habitat, those species there, and the issues that they're facing um, way better than I do. And so having them on on the team and the planning and the implementation of this project, you know, that's, that's crucial. I mean, working together with, with these groups is, it's fantastic yeah so let's talk a little bit about about some of the the species obviously there's fish that live in the river there's waterfowl that use the the river and the backwaters along with you know fur bears and deer and a whole bunch of uh species that use the mississippi river for life and you know sustainable life and habitat and all that stuff how do you guys go about breaking down your tasks that need to be done within a year as I guess, how do you put an importance level on, I guess, what's the most important thing to cover? And at the same time, knowing that the, the Mississippi river is not necessarily just a habitat. It's also a transport runway for industry. How do you guys balance all that? 
yeah, it's, it's probably the biggest challenge we've run into, right? Um, the main mission of the Corps of Engineers, especially the Rock Island District, is to deliver vital engineering and water resource solutions in collaboration with our partners to secure our nation, reduce disaster risk, and enhance quality of life. Um, and that's a lot. And in order to do one of them, sometimes it runs up against um, one of the others. Um, right. Navigation is the primary role for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, so that is, you know, the priority um, when it comes to managing water levels. Okay. We can't interrupt navigation on um, on the Mississippi when it uh, when it comes to. Um, if that's going to conflict with ecosystem restoration, right? It, navigation is, is king. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's definitely a challenge. Okay. So with it, you know, with all that said, then, um, you know, it sounds like there's two separate things. The navigation takes priority over really anything else. You know, the industry still has to do what they do on the river, but, there's also enough room on the Mississippi River for the fishermen, for the habitat restoration, for the duck hunters and, and whatnot. So aside from navigation, then, how do you guys go about balancing the rest of it? Yeah, so I guess aside from navigation, there's also um, flood risk management. So something about our, our locks and dams, they're designed for navigation. They're not... Um, the type of dams that you would see maybe out west or even, you know, in, in central Iowa, when you look at the reservoirs like Coralville, Sailorville, or Red Rock, those are flood risk projects. So they're designed, those dams are designed to hold back water and prevent flooding downstream and to supply um, communities downstream with water. Um, these dams on the Mississippi are what we consider low head dams. Um, they're not going to hold back um, water to prevent flooding. So kind of, I guess we can kind of go through a little bit how they work. It might be helpful. Yeah, go for um, it. For understanding, but they've got, yeah, they've got these gates that lower down in the water. And during low flows or, or what we would consider normal flows, they are holding what, what we call a pool. So they're holding back some water and letting some through. And what you end up with is kind of this stepwise set of pools um, between each block and dam. And so that creates a nice constant and theory creates a nice constant um, pool for barge traffic to travel through. And then they would lock through each lock and they'd step down to the next pool farther downstream and then continue on their way. Um, but when it comes to flood risk management on the Mississippi, that usually takes the form of the levee system that we have um, that protects these communities. Um, you know, you're talking ag fields, um, from from disastrous flooding that, that could occur right um so that's another area where ecosystem restoration can sometimes run up against um, um another mission of the core and it's it, it really is a balancing act um i mentioned uh nepa earlier and so everything the core does has to go through the, the national environmental policy act and so that's one way that we do balance you know environmental considerations with either navigation or flood risk management. You're looking at what are these navigation actions going to have on the environment or what are these, you know, levy actions going to have on the environment. And so that helps 
you know, prevent us as a federal agency from doing anything that would negatively impact the environment. Okay. And then, and then I would say like outside of that, then there's the opportunity to do proactive ecosystem restoration. And um, then you can get into how do we rank which projects, where those projects are going to be, um, whether you have priority species or priority habitat, that's a whole process that we would go through to try and figure out what's the best project in the best place at, at that time. Okay. So I want to talk about flooding for uh, just a bit because it's it's one of those things that every year, you, I feel like the last couple of years here in Iowa specifically, the the river, the water levels have been just a crazy, um, you know, just have been up and flooding multiple times throughout the year. I feel like it's been more than normal. You hear rumors about what causes it, you know, um, farmers are all tiling their fields. So when we do get the rain, we, we don't have the, uh, the soil isn't slowing the water down. It's just dumping right out of the field, into the creek, into the creek, into the river, into the river, into the Mississippi, you know, like that. And, um, so, How do you guys manage uh, the lock and dam system when, let's say, north uh, in Minnesota gets a 12 inches of rain? This is all crazy talk, but, you know, like it gets a large amount of rain. And then how do you guys prepare for that downstream, let's say, in Burlington or, um, you know, the other southern lock and dams throughout the state of Iowa and Illinois? Yeah, so... You know, it might be helpful to talk about um, kind of like what a normal like season would be like as okay. far as water levels. Um, and you can we can go back like pre-lock and dam. Start of the year, you've got snowpack. That snow melts as you get into spring. Um, you get spring rain. You're going to see an increase in the water levels, right? We're talking before we've got lock, lock and dam. So you can go back 500 years, whatever you want to, however far you want to go back. Um, and so you end up what we normally refer to as this spring flood pulse, where this the river swells, it, it floods up out of its banks, it, it spreads out into the floodplain. And then as we get into summer, it gets drier, you have less rain, and that, those water levels go down. Um, and that's going to expose a lot of substrate, sandbars, mudflats um, along the river there. And that's when you get that vegetation growing up, creating lots of habitat for fish and wildlife. Um, now, with the lock and dams, um, with levee systems, we don't really have that natural um, spring flood pulse that pulses out into the floodplain because these levees have, have cut off the river from the from its floodplain. So we've become really good at moving water upstream, downstream, um, and that's kind of what you were getting to. With we see these extreme high water events, um, and say Minnesota gets. 12 inches of rain, like you said. Um, the only thing that could happen at these at these locks and dams, like I said, they're not flood risk management dams, is the gates can come up all the way out of the water, and that's what we call open river condition. So the, the dams are no longer holding back any water. Um, you don't have that stepwise pool anymore. You just basically have the gates up out of the water, and the river is free-flowing. It's, it's open water. Okay. So with, with that said, does there be, there, I feel like depending on, on the, the, 
the amount of rain or snow melt or the combination of 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 the two that there's only so much that you guys can do on on a scenario like that to the point where you're just like hold on because we can only do so much to prevent flooding or prevent uh, uh, a disaster type event to you know because of the the lock and dams in the organization i mean there has to be a point i feel that um that the water level is uncontrollable at certain points and thus in the perfect example i i live really close to cedar rapids iowa and in the past two years or not two years in the past however many years we've seen that city become f- completely flooded uh and due to high water you know to high water and lots of rain and, and snow melt and whatnot is there a point that you guys kind of just say, hey, we've done everything we can do. The rest is in God's hand at this point? Yeah, so Mother Nature is hard to uh, hard to control most yeah. of the time. Um, I would say that the, the flood risk aspect of, of the Corps of Engineers, that emergency management mission um, steps in when we get into um, – a flood situation. So like you said, there's only so much you can do with the dams themselves. Those gates come up, it's open river, but then the core has this emergency, emergency management side of things where, um, this would involve, uh, sandbagging for, for local communities, right? Like right here down in the quad cities, um, Davenport had its, its highest, its record, um, crest highest the river's ever been recorded at Davenport. And so part of that, um, guess flood risk management is you know helping out these communities with with sandbagging efforts um, with levy repairs um, providing pumps to levy districts in order to um, you know reduce the impact that, that this flooding can have but but you're right at some point you know it's it's in God's hands you can't stop the river from from doing what it's going to do and and you're right about the the increase in in flood events you know I've got a little chart here that says, you know, the decade from 1930 to 1939, they had zero events, zero overbank events. From 40 to 49, they had one. And, you know, the decade 2010 to 2019, we've had 17. Yeah. So, I mean, this is definitely a trend that we've seen over the last 10 years. And, you know, it's reasonable to assume that it's going to continue. Yeah. And is there, you know, I've mentioned farmers adding additional tile to their fields. Uh, are there any other factors that may be increasing those events? Um, you know, with a system as complex and dynamic as Mississippi River and its tributaries and the entire watershed, it's, it's hard to pin it down on one thing, right? You can cite increased um, rainfall, whether that's from, from climate change or or what have you, it's, it's hard to really nail it down. I mean, levees are really good at protecting what's behind them, but like I said, they're also really good at pushing water downstream, um, which, you know, when the river used to expand out into the floodplain, you wouldn't have as extreme flooding events downstream because that water got to spread out. Um, but if you prevent that and you push it downstream and it keeps, you know, it's a compounding effect, right? Yes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. So, the the whole flooding aspect, kind of, you know, the, my next question is is how does flooding 
and how does how the core of engineers controlling the waterway affect the habitat uh, for fish and wildlife? Yeah, so I guess one one good example would kind of be that that situation that I set up before where you're looking at pre-lock and dam where you've got that natural cycle of flooding in the spring and then receding water levels and you get the exposure the exposure of substrate you know like dirt sandbar mud flat and then you get the growth of aquatic vegetation um, that provides habitat for fish and wildlife when you institute these but after the construction of these blocks and dams um, you create these these big pools that I've, that I've talked about and you reduce that variation, that seasonal variation that you used to have. Um, and so maybe a good way to look at it is right, right after the, the institute, the construction of the lock and dam, um, you can imagine what was once kind of a, a narrow uh, braided type river that had lots of side channels and tributaries, lots of islands, and then it'd be like flooding that whole river valley, right? And you right. end up with this this big pool that you created upstream of the lock and dam. And initially that created a ton of habitat for fish and wildlife because you flooded timber, right? You got lots of ducks that are loving that. Um, you've got lots of islands that created, but over time, um, those islands eroded as they're exposed to, you know, waves across this, this newly created navigation pool. Um, you've got sedimentation that's kind of filling in. So what once, used to be like um, lots of topographic diversity in the stream bed. You had lots of habitat for fish. Um, those fill in, those backwaters fill in, and you get this kind of like uniform navigation pool just upstream from, from your dam. Um, and so we've seen an overall loss of habitat, at least in the lower half of these navigation pools. Um, is that, is that kind of what you were looking for as far as like how the dams maybe affected like habitat? Yeah, uh, and not, not necessarily just the, the dams themselves, but uh, it sounds to me like, it, you know, it's, it's a balance, right? One thing affects something like if you open up if you open up the dams to have a a free-flowing river it's going to affect something if you close it down and slow down the river it's going to affect something right it's it's it sounds to me like it's yeah. a it's a very delicate and complex balance yeah it is and it's you know for navigation you really do not want a variable water level or variable river, right? right? You don't want large fluctuations in um, the depth of your, your nav navigation channel. You want that to be nice and constant so that these, these barge operators can get up and down the river um, without running aground on, on new sandbars or um, areas where sedimentation has uh, you know, made that navigation channel real shallow. Um, but when you, when you talk about like in the instance of flooding where those gates do come out of the water, then it you know, what habitat was there, you can see, you know, detrimental effects on that habitat. If there's prolonged flooding, you end up flooding, um, you know, timber that, or floodplain forest that has had water on it for 200 plus days. And those trees can only, you know, withstand so much flooding and then you end up losing floodplain forests and, you know, flooding that, that can have detrimental effects on, on wildlife habitat. 
for sure. Right. Right. So let's talk about some of the, um, things that I guess I have some sort of experience with, and that would be, uh, the purpose of, let's say like a wing dam. I know that whenever we're out in the Mississippi, uh, we fish, uh, near or on these wing dams. What is a wing dam and what purpose does it serve? Yeah. So when we talk about wing dams, they would fall into the category of these river training structures. Um, you also have what you would consider like a side channel closing structure, um, shoreline protection. And I guess in, in general, the, like the role of the wing dam would be to direct the river's flow towards the channel to continue to, um, allow flow within the channel. So when water slows down, if it's carrying any kind of sediment, that sediment will drop out. And that's what we think of as like sedimentation. And so by installing these, these wing dams and these other river training structures, you keep most of the flow within the channel and that prevents sedimentation in the channel and keeps your depth, you know, in theory maintains your nine foot navigation channel without you having to go in and, and dredge it out back to nine feet. Right. Right. How you mentioned dredging there. What is like, how often do you actually have to dredge the channel? Is that like a, a once a year thing? Because I don't think I've ever seen a dredge do its job on a, on the main channel in the Mississippi. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool to watch. Um, there's a, there's a couple different types of dredging. When you think of dredging, there's mechanical, which can be as simple as, um, you know, like a backhoe with a bucket mechanically going down and digging out an area. Um, this is usually on a much smaller scale. Um, from a habitat restoration standpoint, this can be done to dredge out, you know, small backwaters for, um, for fish habitat, for fish overwintering habitat. Um, but then there's also hydraulic dredging. And so this is a much larger scale. Um, this is actual a dredge that's hydraulically sucking up sediment and water, it's kind of like in this slurry mix. Um, and then it can pump it sometimes as far as, as two miles to a placement site. And this is something that, you know, dredging is done in the Rock Island, St. Louis, and in um, St. Paul District every year. Um, they identify through hydrographic surveys. They'll go out and they'll identify problem spots. Um, sometimes they don't know about a problem spot until a barge runs aground, and then there's a kind of a you know a short turnaround to get out there, get that that problem area dredged, um, so that navigation can uh, can get back up and running. But yeah, that's something that it's like I said, when you do get a chance to see it, it's pretty it's pretty interesting to watch. But um, it does happen every year. Right. Now, my father-in-law, he's the fisherman of, you know, I just go where he tells me to go. And he's been fishing the Mississippi River for like 35 years now. And, you know, he, he likes to fish the wing dams. Do you know what it is about the wing dam that, you know, it, it, it does its job as far as the navigation, but what makes it attractive to fish for a, uh, for habitat? Yeah, so there's probably some fisheries biologists that could that could give you a better uh, understanding of that, but it's but it's structure, right? When you're when you're fishing and you've got your depth finder and you're and you're looking for for sites to to set up, you're usually looking for some sort of structure that fish like to hang out on. Um, the structure can provide you know habitat for smaller bait fish that that your larger like 
if you're fishing for walleye, maybe your walleye are hanging out on one of these wing dams because they're eating bait fish. Um, it can protect them from flow, right? Maybe it's a little slower water there. Your velocity is lower, and so it's easier for them to hang out behind this wing dam. Um, provides cover as well. Um, wing dams and other rock structures like that will also provide um, very good habitat for, for different species of freshwater mussels. And so that's one way that that freshwater mussel restoration projects have, have looked to, to help mussel populations out. Gotcha. So um, wing dams are, are one structure that not only helps the the river but is great for you know habitat are there any other structures that uh that the corps of engineers puts in place that also kind of doubles for um habitat whether it's fish or other types of wildlife yeah so there are what we would call like chevrons which are you could kind of think of like uh like an upside down v that's with the point of that V pointing upstream. Yep. Um, these can be seen at, can be used as river training structures as well as um, habitat restoration because what tends to happen is as that water passes around the corners of this, you can think of this upside down V, um, it's going to deposit sediment behind and within that, that structure. Um, as that, oftentimes it's sand, as that sand and sediment builds up, you can get you know, pioneering species like willows popping up on it, willows, and then it can expand to like cottonwoods will pop up on it, and you'll end up with some, some floodplain forest, some habitat, um, at which point you can get, you know, colonial nesting birds like pelicans, cormorants, herons, and egrets nesting on these, these small um, islands in the middle of the, of the river, and they can, like you said, they can double as, as both river training and, and habitat restoration structures. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I was listening to my father-in-law talk about how they build some of those islands that are out on the Mississippi River with the um, whatever rock formations, and then behind the rock formation is I don't know. Do they bring additional dirt in or sediment in? behind it or does the river just do its job and they just keep adding rock to build it up higher and higher until it, it actually is a full-blown island yeah so it, it both ways it can happen both ways um just depending on on the project itself sometimes a lot of those um those islands or those those structures that they build will just be rock structures that have a certain shape based on the flow of the river um with the intention that you know, there will be some sedimentation behind those behind those structures. Um, but a lot of times they're really designed to slow down that water. A lot of the, um, the vegetation, the aquatic vegetation that grows in the Mississippi River um, can only withstand a certain amount of velocity, right? Right. If you've got flow ripping through there, you're not going to get much aquatic vegetation to establish. So by constructing these um, these rock structures, you can actually slow that flow down. And um, you've got an entire seed bank of aquatic veg waiting to uh, to germinate and pop up when you've got the right the right flows. So that's awesome. And then, like you said, other times, yeah, other times they'll actually you know build a structure, and then when they're dredging out, whether they're dredging out the main channel and they're taking advantage of that sand that they've dredged out, or if they're dredging out a nearby backwater, like I said, for fish habitat, they can then pump that sand in into those rock structures, and they'll actually. You know, create a brand new island. Um, that island can be uh, 
been planted potentially if that's if that's in the, the scope of the project with with floodplain forest species and it's you know we we really get to do some some pretty cool projects here yeah. on the river have you have you ever played sim city where you get to create the land yeah. and then you get to create what's on top of the land and all that stuff it almost sounds like you guys are like it's like SimCity for adults, like in real life. You're actually changing the way the river runs. You're changing, um, you know, where land is deposited. You're throwing some rock piles of rocks in there that creates new flow. And uh, at the back end, all these other animals are able to call this place home, which is is absolutely crazy. Do, do you have an example of, let's say, uh, a, a project that you've done? Uh, whether you worked by yourself or with a, a state or federal agency that when you were doing your project, it resulted in additional habitat and you got to see maybe a suffering species begin to flourish again. Off the top of my head. So I have been in the rock Island district since August of 2018. Okay. Um, I'm currently working on a habitat restoration project up by Clinton, Iowa in pool 13. Um, but a project that I've actually worked on, um, I haven't, I have not had that experience at this point. Gotcha. Um, but I can talk a little bit about the one I'm working on now. Yeah. Do it. That, yeah. So this is in lower pool 13 and, you know, I think it might be good to kind of talk about how, like how this project is funded, how the Corps does habitat restoration. Um, it's a pretty cool story. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Um, yeah, so like I said, navigation has been the, the main goal of the Corps, at least on the Mississippi, for, for a very long time. But then in the late 80s, and 1986, 1990, um, the Corps was tasked with an ecosystem, re- ecosystem restoration um, mission as well. And this sparked um, the Upper Mississippi River Restoration Program, um, which is kind of the first of its kind for restoration on a large river, um, the goal of which was a healthier and more resilient Upper Mississippi River ecosystem that sustains the river's multiple uses. Um, And so when it actually created this program, Congress designated the Mississippi River as a nationally significant ecosystem and a nationally significant commercial navigation system. Um, and it's the only river in the nation with, with that designation. So that kind of, you know, speaks to the, the balance that we've been talking about throughout the conversation. But this, this program annually um, contributes millions of dollars to habitat restoration on the Upper Mississippi River. Um, as of 2019, there's been 56 different projects completed on the Upper Mississippi River um, that restored over 100,000 acres of habitat and then we currently have 23 projects in planning right now wow that's a lot of acres one of which yeah 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 it's a it's a fantastic program that's awesome um, so for for fiscal year 20 so this year we we've got 33 million dollars that'll be going to to habitat restoration through this program um, it's a it's a major habitat restoration program um, in the nation Okay. And that's on the, that's near Clinton, Iowa and pool 13. Yeah. So, so pool 13, um, is what we would consider a, so one thing about the Corps of Engineers is 
we love our um, acronyms. Um, everything is, is an acronym. And so these projects are called HREPs, which stands for Habitat Rehabilitation and Enhancement Projects. Um, and so, yeah, in Lower Pool 13 there, right by Clinton, Iowa, um, this is this is probably where the Mississippi River is its widest. In some areas, it's it's almost four miles across from east to west. Okay. Um, so it really fits, you know, the, the definition of like a navigation pool, right? It's this wide impounded reach just above Lock and Dam 13. And it's special because it supports a um, many what we consider beds of wild celery. It's a, it's a, a aquatic vegetation species. It's what we consider a submergent aquatic vegetation. So this would be um, like a plant that's rooted to the, to the riverbed and the entirety of it, its leaves that it sends up are underwater. So it'll send these leaves up and it'll go to the water surface and they'll stop right there. Um, so you can imagine that a species like that is really kind of dependent on on clearer water, right? Since it's not sticking up above the water, it needs clear water in, in order for sunlight to, to reach its leaves. But the pool is cool because it has these large beds of wild celery, and this is a favorite for uh, migrating waterfowl, specifically canvasbacks on this stretch of the river. And so this project is really geared towards preserving the wild celery beds that we have there currently and designing features that will allow us to um, kind of promote the growth of wild celery in areas of the pool that currently don't support wild celery. Interesting. What you should see after construction of this project, if you drive over to Clinton in, say, October, November, and you break out your binos or your spotting scope and you start counting canvasbacks, you should see these big rafts. thousands of canvasbacks camped out there during their fall migration and what they're doing is they're eating these these winter buds of this wild celery as they dive down and, and get it off the, the riverbed so i don't know it, can you hunt canvasbacks i'm not a wa- waterfowl guy yeah yeah so okay so I believe the limit now is one one per day yeah. one per day okay so so you're indirectly helping well, I mean, you're directly, but indirectly. I mean, the you're not doing it specifically for the the hunters, but they get they get the reward of having additional canvasback ducks on that stretch of the river because of your habitat improvement program. Absolutely, yeah, that's absolutely. awesome. You know, I was I was born yeah I was born on the river, growing up duck hunting down in Alton, Illinois. My dad. My dad's a bird taxidermist down there still, so he's you know uniquely invested in uh, in waterfowl in the river and, and habitat as well. So yeah, it's 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 definitely a benefit for for waterfowl hunters in that sense. So let me ask you this: How do you go about planting underwater salary in the Mississippi River? So so I'm not sure if we'll be. At this point, that's that's not in the in the cards necessarily, just because of the scale of the pool. Okay. Um, as far as actually planting, we, what we would do is basically design some of those like those rock structures that I was talking about earlier that would promote like you know the velocities that are acceptable for for that species. Okay. Um, and okay. Then let them come up. Let them come up on their own. 
Okay, so what you're but, what you're saying is that if you slow down the river enough, you feel that that vegetation will then have a chance to grow. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So it's, a, it's it's definitely a dynamic system. We have some great data in this pool. Um, you know, thirty years of data that's been collected, so where you can really see how the the beds have changed over that thirty years, and you, it's it's really neat. There's kind of a cool animation of it where the data for each year is, is, you know, it kind of shifts from one year to the next to the next. And you can see how dynamic it is and how it shifts over time um, just based on, you know, the flows that year, whether there was a drought year, or heavy rains, or it was, you know, a good year for it. So it, it's definitely a dynamic um, system that if you provide it with the, what it's looking for, it's going to, it's going to fill that, that niche. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So obviously that's uh, a project that's going to help, uh, vegetation and obviously that will create fish habitat and the waterfowl are going to love it um i want to ask you up now about invasive species uh, i know that there's some carp there, there's a lot of carp there's some zebra mussels there's um uh i think there's some uh, also some vegetation that grows r- rampant in some of those pools correct me if i'm wrong but how do you guys combat or even do you combat invasive species? Yeah, so that's, you know, one of the hot-button issues right now. Um, you touched on carp. Carp's a big one, right? There's four different species of Asian carp that we really um, consider invasive in, in the mist. That'd be big head black grass and silver. There's also common carp, um, but they haven't been as big of an issue as these as these big four. Um yeah, they, one way that, that the core would be combating Asian carp um, is trying to prevent them from getting into the Great Lakes, right? So they've basically been dominant, or, uh, documented everywhere from the Gulf of Mexico up into Minnesota now, um, but they still haven't reached the Great Lakes. And so one of the big projects the core has been working on is the Brandon Road Lock and Dam on the Illinois River, which is the last lock and dam before Lake Michigan. And there are a lot of um, features that they're looking at in order to prevent these Asian carp species from getting through that lock and dam and getting into Lake Michigan, Um, whether it's an electrical barrier or a sound barrier or a bubble curtain to try and keep them out of that lock as barges and uh, boats are locking through. Mm -hmm. Um, That's that's one of the, the big ones for the Corps right now. Yeah. That's great. Um, That's crazy. Uh, those are the fish that if you run your motor at a certain speed or, or throttle, it, they'll jump out of the water, right? Yeah. You've seen some of those videos where the yeah. guys have, <laughs> yep. Yeah. yep. I've seen those videos, man. Yeah, um, it, how, how dangerous is that? I mean, I don't want to say dangerous, the, the sport of the fish jumping out, but what threat what what happens if the Asian carp gets into the the Great Lakes and maybe even on our level on the Mississippi River? What is the Asian carp? What what are they threatening? Are they threatening other fish? Are they threatening habitat? Can they just reproduce at a at a larger rate? What's the what's the threat there? Yeah, so you you hit them all on the head there. Actually, um, the the big issue is they outcompete the native fish, so they're much better at what they do in our river than um, than our native fish are. Um, they stir up the sediment on the bottom. They promote poorer water quality. That 
you know, we talked about how in order to have that vegetation under the water, you need clear enough water so light can penetrate. And the worse the water quality gets, the less habitat, you know, the less aquatic vegetation you're going to end up with. And then, um, you know, if they get into the Great Lakes, they're out competing natives there, they're reducing water quality. That's a $7 billion fishing industry in the Great Lakes that, that we're talking about. Um, right. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a serious, serious issue. Uh, what about... What about the vegetation? My, my father-in-law uh, bitches about how there's years where it's, <laughs> it's just so weedy you can't even you can't even use a crankbait in the in the river without having to you know take it off the hook every single cast. Is there a species of vegetation that is invasive that is clogging up uh, waterways? Yeah, there, there are a number of invasive aquatic vegetation species. Um, Eurasian water milfoil is one of the bad ones. Um, that's something that, you know, he's probably cleaning off the prop, and he, like you said, he's taking off the crankbait every cast. Um, they're species that, again, they're going to create kind of like a monoculture, you know, an area where it's just that species. They're going to outcompete the native vegetation. Um Oftentimes they don't provide any um, kind of food resource to waterfowl or any other species. So, you know, sometimes there's this, this idea that, well, there's vegetation there, so why do you care what it is? Well, you know, not all vegetation is created equal, right? You right, know? right. Now, when I was down in New Orleans, um, uh, well, this was a long time ago, I went out on back in the bayou, right, and they had this, um, the, the whole idea was, hey, let's introduce this plant that will be a natural wave breaker to prevent erosion uh, through all the barges and stuff that are coming through. Well, what they didn't realize was that that then became the problem because it grew so fast and so hard in that environment that it then became the reason the waterways were being clogged up. So do we, were these invasive species, I guess, how did they get here? How did some of these this uh, invasive species, specifically plants, get to the point? Is it something that just kind of worked its way up? Is it something that we ourselves planted to try and do one thing, but then we realized, oh, shit, this had a complete opposite effect? Yeah, you know, it's, it depends on the species. Um, I would say, that, you know, a lot of times it's the exact situation you just described. Um, you see this a lot with terrestrial invasive plants, whether... You know, it's like Russian olive or Lespedeza species that were, you know, planted on purpose to prevent erosion along roadways or, um, you know, that we intentionally introduced thinking it would be beneficial, not realizing how out of hand it would get. And, you know, today we kind of have a good understanding of the threat that, you know, introducing a non-native species to you know, a new environment can have because that species likely doesn't have any checks or balances on it in a novel environment. And so it's able to outcompete anybody else that it runs into. Right. Right. So let me ask you this. Is it your guys' job to try to get everything back to the way it was? You know, let's take navigation out of it because obviously navigation trumps everything, but getting the habitat back to what it was or just maintaining it? 
so it doesn't, let's say now we're talking about an invasive species to the point where it doesn't explode and, you know, kill off the, the native species. Yeah. Um, you know, over my career, that's kind of been like kind of a, a tough thing to, to nail down because, you know, inherently you have to pick like a date to get it back to and what, what would that date be? Is it a hundred years ago? Are you going for 500 years ago? Um, kind of that question of like, what is natural? Right. Um, I would say the goal of ecosystem restoration for the core is to improve the habitat and get it to a point where it's resilient and it can withstand, um, the variations that we're going to see in the future, whether that's climate change, whether that's, you know, flooding in our case. Um, I'm not sure that, that you could say we have like a, like a goal reference point where we get it there and we're like, okay, good, we're done. You know, right. wipe our hands and walk away. Right. Um, but it's, it's mimicking a, a natural, um, a natural system. Um, I guess one, one example of that would be um, what we consider water level management or drawdowns on the river. So I mentioned a couple of times the natural, you know, spring flood pulse in summer and the water levels drop and you can get that vegetation to grow during the growing season. One way to, to mimic that with the, with the lock and dam is to operate um, with the pool on the low side during the growing season. And so you're maintaining navigation in the channel. You're not going down so low that the barge traffic ceases, but you're exposing lots of that substrate on the edges, you know, kind of the perimeter, the banks of the river that will allow the growth of, of aquatic vegetation um, and provide habitat for wildlife. So, you know, there, there's a way that we're trying to mimic what it, you know, was like pre-lock and dam. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So now, um, how many days a year would you say that you're actually on the river working or right along the river working or out in, I guess, out in the field? Um. Not as often as I'd like to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I, uh, I came from the project office before I moved up here to, to Rock Island, and that was a very field-oriented position. Um, moving into planning, it's much more, um, well, on the planning side of things. Um, but it's important that, you know, you don't get stuck in your cubicle and stuck inside and 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 forgetting the reason that you're that you're doing what you're doing right you need right. to get out you need to get your boots on the ground and, and see these ecosystems um and really see the effects of the the great ecosystem restoration work that we've done in the past right um, like i said that hundred and six thousand acres that that's been restored over the lifetime of the umr program that's that's a lot of a lot of ground, a lot of acres, a lot yeah. of habitat. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So do you ever get the opportunity to reap your own rewards and go out with a fishing pole and, uh, take advantage of some of those days where you are out in the field? Yeah. So, you know, weekends, we recently, um, me and a couple of coworkers were up, uh, up by Dubuque, um, ice fishing. Yeah. Um, you know, hunting on the river, waterfowl hunting, that's another area where you, where you do, you get to kind of reap, reap the rewards. Um, I'm, I'm a big, I did my, my master's research on, um, 
on birds and that their use of habitat in the floodplain forest. And so, you know, I've over the course of my academic career, I've kind of become a uh, a pseudo birder, I guess you could say. So it's nice to get out there, whether you're looking at um, waterfowl or or eagles or you know other species that that utilize the the floodplain forest. It's really neat to get out there and just and just watch what's going on, which is you know it's rewarding in that sense. That's a fact, man. I'll tell you what, you mentioned eagles, and I don't know, you know how much you know about them, because I'm, I'm just, all I know is that I've seen a lot more in the last five years than I did the previous however many years. I just remember that yeah. when I was a, a kid, we would drive to uh, Keokuk, Iowa, or uh, Burlington, Iowa, and we would see uh, certain plants would have like a, a warm water discharge into the river, and it'd be open open uh water during the uh winter months and then we could see the, all the eagles in the trees but now i see tons of eagles all over the mississippi river and even way further in inland and i feel like there's been a population increase big time do, do you have any idea i don't maybe you do maybe you don't any idea why that is yeah so i mean that's that's a tangible and, and stark example of the success of the Endangered Species Act. Um, you know, way back in, I'm not sure when they were listed. They were probably one of the first ones listed in the, um, on the ESA, but that was, you know, stopping the use of DDT. DDT, the, the pesticide, yep. um, would, would cause fragile egg syndrome. And so their eggshells were real thin and the eggs would crack when they would sit on the nest. Um, and so after banning the use of that, they were able to, to come off the, the endangered species list. And yeah, they are, they are doing really well. They're, it's kind of the, one of the, the better success stories of, of the ESA. Um, right. and they're still protected under the bald and golden eagle protection act. But yeah, I, I live actually kind of in, in North central Illinois, um, a decent distance from the rib, river and we get them out there. Yeah. Um, by our house too yeah absolutely i had them in uh where i do most of my hunting and we were about an hour hour and 15 minutes from this mississippi river and there was a a small creek that ran through the the property that i hunt there was a bald eagle nesting on that property and so that was uh that's pretty crazy to wake you know be in a tree stand sun's coming up and then you hear one sounding off about you know 20 i I guess 100 yards from you Right. And just that, that noise yeah. that is unmistakably a bald eagle. Right. So that's kind of uh cool, but we're here, we're here kind of uh, wrapping up now, but I want to, I want to ask you one, one last question. And I, the listeners of this podcast would, would be pissed if I didn't ask you a fishing related question, because we, we talk about tactics and tips and and stuff like that but we mentioned wing dams we mentioned some of those v's that you put out there some other uh, underwater structures knowing what you know about you know the corps of engineers and the structures that you guys build and, and how you manage is there a specific place that a guy can go to or maybe you would go to every single time it's like hey if i want to catch a lot of fish today i'm going to take advantage of my knowledge with dams and locks and wing dams and all this stuff i'm going here to fish and uh do you have any insight for us on that end oh i'm gonna disappoint you um i'd have to put (laughs) you in touch with my uh a couple of my fisheries biologist buddies that i work with they would 
they know uh, all the spots on the river. Um, man, you know, I'd, I'd be honest with you, I'm, I do a lot more small stream fishing kind of in the central part of the state. Right. Um, so I wouldn't, I'd, I don't have the secret spots for you, but I know who to put you in touch with. Gotcha. I'm looking for some secret spots. I might have to get, I might have to get that guy on Un- unless you're being really smart about this whole thing. And you're, and you're like, well, I'll tell you what, <laughs> I'm not giving out any information about this because the next time I go out, there's going to be 15 boats on my favorite spot. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Dylan, man, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for the insight on what you do, how the en- Corps of Engineers works. Just kind of a hodgepodge of information today. So uh, thanks for your time and, and what you do. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate, you know, the opportunity to to talk about this, you know, to, to your listeners. I, I think the river is incredible, and anybody – who has the opportunity to go out and recreate recreate on it, whether that's, you know, boating, fishing, hunting, camping, you know, I think it's, you'd be missing out if you didn't do it. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. Really appreciate it. Huge shout out to Dylan for taking time to hop on today and, and uh, chat with us about what he does there at the Corps Engineers. And a uh, huge shout out to our partner, Bondurant Custom Furniture. Please go out and check out their website, BondurantCustomFurniture.com. Other than that, if you guys haven't visited iowasportsman.com to check out the blogs that we put up there, uh, lots of great information, and be sure to subscribe to the magazine as well. You can do that at the at the iowasportsman.com website. You can do it there as well, or you can look for it if you live in Iowa on your local newsstand. Other than that, Not too much to say. Make sure you guys are subscribed to this uh, podcast on iTunes or wherever you download your uh, wherever you download your podcasts. And lastly, go to the Iowa Sportsman Facebook page and follow along. And there's a ton of good content that comes out of there as well. So hopefully everybody has a great rest of your day. Hopefully everybody has a great rest of your week, month, and uh, we'll talk to you next time.